happy Saturday. It's August 12th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And we are two of your airmail editors that are here to entertain and explain what exactly is going on during these dog days of summer. They are the dog days of summer, but some of us are running around like mad dogs trying to get the most of it, right? We have to maximize and optimize. Fall is coming, but we still have plenty of summer left and plenty of joy and delights to talk about here today. Plenty of joy and delight and a great show on Speaking of Joy and Delight. Jeffrey Tubin will stop by to tell us what we need to know about the man they call the cheese. A lawyer allied with Donald Trump who laid out a plot to subvert the 2020 election. Then, Joseph Bullmore has a report from London on the secretive and somewhat strange world of what you might call blue blood banks, where the UK's very rich keep their money from commingling with the filthy lucre of the common man. And finally, the always enlightening and entertaining Linda Wells is here, the editor of Airmail Look, our new publication that covers all things beauty and wellness. Linda will tell us what we need to know to look our best this summer and going into the fall. Ashley, I think you'll agree there's only one place to begin, and that's with Jeffrey Tubin's terrific profile of the man who was formerly known as co-conspirator number five and is officially known as Kenneth Chesborough, right? Jeffrey Tubin is an American lawyer, author, blogger, and a longtime legal analyst for CNN. He is the author of True Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Investigation of Donald Trump in 2020, and his latest is Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Welcome, Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey, we really hope you can make sense of this story for us about how a mild-mannered Democrat from Wisconsin ended up as the legal architect of Donald Trump's insidious plans to stay in office. You want me to make sense of the world, Ashley? I am not good enough to explain how insane this whole situation is. All I can tell you is the story of Ken Chesborough, which is bizarre to be sure, but making sense... That's above my pay grade. Okay, well, can we just call him the cheese? At least we can all agree on something. Totally, totally. Just to begin the explanation, Ken Chesborough is identified in the indictment of Donald Trump as co-conspirator number five. He is the person who came up with the idea for the fake elector scheme that is at the heart of that indictment. He is also a member of the Harvard Law School class of 1986, as am I, and I've known Ken for close to 40 years. And that's what my piece in Air Malice about is who is this guy and how did he get involved in this craziness? Well, take us back, Jeffrey. I mean, you knew this guy long before he was an insidious bad actor. What was he like at Harvard in the 80s? Well, Harvard Law School, present company included, is sort of nerd heaven. I mean, it's a place full of nerds, but Ken was a nerd among nerds. I mean, he was a really quiet, really socially awkward person who did his work, but lived a bit of a life apart. I I tell a story in the piece about how in an exam, he had an extra typewriter. We used to be able to type exams in those prehistoric days. And he brought two typewriters to the exam, which tells you something right there. And a woman in the exam had hers break it towards the end of the exam and asked Ken, can I use your extra typewriter 
And Ken said, no, Harvard Law School is a dog-eat-dog place. Now, that is a person without social skills. And that's one aspect of his personality that I think has been intact for all these years. Jeffrey, after he graduated from Harvard Law School and began his career as a lawyer, what kind of law was he practicing? And when did things start to get interesting for our purposes? Well, the thing about Ken is that he took an unusual path. After a clerkship in Washington, he was a solo practitioner back in Cambridge. Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he's remained a solo practitioner his whole career. Much of the time, he worked with and for Lawrence Tribe, who is a famous Harvard Law School professor, is also a famous liberal, someone who has worked on democratic causes for his whole career, and can happily worked with him. He also did a lot of work for what's known as the plaintiff's bar, which is in civil cases, in personal injury cases, the plaintiff side, that's very much a liberal democratic stronghold. And his views, including a Law Review article he wrote, were very much in keeping with this. So basically, for decades, he was a modestly successful, totally obscure liberal lawyer who worked with Tribe, who's his longtime mentor, and other sort of liberal Democrats in trying to help plaintiffs in civil cases. But Jeffrey, let's let's get to the sort of like, seems like one of the turning points in his life, which also weirdly echoes 20 years later, is he ends up working on the Gore side of Bush v. Gore in 2000, right? Absolutely. He, Tribe was Al Gore's first Supreme Court advocate in the two Supreme Court cases that came up out of the Florida fight in 2000. And in preparing that case, Ken was one of Tribe's deputies, and that was completely consistent with the kind of politics that was reflected in his career from his graduation from Harvard Law School until 2000, when that fight took place, and into the new century until things took a very dramatic turn in his life around 2014. I think the term midlife crisis was probably invented for what went on in Ken's life in the decade of the 2010s when he was in his 50s. He was married starting in 1994 to a woman widely regarded among friends as a lovely person who was a physician, a surgeon, who later went to law school and worked with Ken. He had a rancorous divorce from her. He started investing in crypto in 2014. And at least according to the way he reported it to Lawrence Tribe, his mentor, and based on his lifestyle, he made a fortune in crypto, millions of dollars, and he upgraded his lifestyle tremendously. He moved from, from a modest apartment in Cambridge to bigger apartments in Tony parts of Boston, and later bought a penthouse at 230 Central Park South, where an adjacent apartment is on the market for $14 million. That's the kind of lifestyle he started living. But again, it's all consistent with a dramatic change. And again, for our present purposes, it also coincided with a 180 degree political shift. He started working with right-wing lawyers like John Eastman, who later became co-conspirator number two in the Trump indictment. He represented Ted Cruz in a Supreme Court case. He also started giving money in large amounts to Republican candidates for office, something he had never done before. He gave the maximum to Donald Trump in 2020. He gave the maximum to Ron Johnson, the senator from his home state of Wisconsin, who had defeated Russ Feingold, the uh, Democratic senator there, whom Ken had given money to back in the 90s. So um, 
it, it's not entirely a surprise that given this very active Republican persona he adopted, that he was recruited to go to work on the Trump uh, legal campaign to stay in office after he lost the 2020 election. What exactly is he accused of uh, and how much trouble is he in? Well, he is not charged with any crime yet. Um, he, he is listed in the indictment against Trump as a co-conspirator. What that means in real terms is that he is at great risk of being indicted himself uh, for his role in, in, the fake, uh, in the fake elector scheme. Uh, but at the moment, I think it's important to emphasize he hasn't been charged w- with any uh, with any wrongdoing. But if you read that indictment and if you know how to read an indictment, you can see um, he, he's at great risk. Specifically, what he is accused of doing is coming up with this idea of the fake electors. And what that is, is, you know, I think most people know that, you know, our presidential elections are based on. Uh, not the overall popular vote, but the electoral, the, the, the vote in each state. And each state has a certain number of electoral votes. And they are actual human beings who are supposed to meet on December 14th uh, uh, after an election to cast their votes, which are then brought to Washington uh, on January 6th. Wisconsin had 10 electoral votes. Biden won the state by 20,000 votes. And then... Um, um, on December 15th, uh, December 14th, the state of Wisconsin designated those 10 people as the electors for the state of Wisconsin. Ken came up with the idea that the Trump electors, the 10 people who were going to be the electors if Trump won the election in Wisconsin, should be designated as electors as well. And they came up with this phony certificate that said these were actual electors as well. This certificate was also presented to Washington. And in the fateful joint session of Congress on January 6th, this was presented by Trump supporters as an alternative set of electors, which Vice President Pence could recognize. The indictment charges that this whole venture of creating a separate group of electors was an act of fraud and a criminal act on the part of Donald Trump, who was behind it. But the clear implication of the indictment, although, as I said, Ken was not charged, is that the people who came up with this idea and put it forward are also potentially guilty of 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 a crime, of, of a conspiracy to obstruct Congress in its constitutional duty to designate the winner of the presidential election. That's the risk that Ken faces. And um, it's a a real potential problem for him. So, Jeffrey, you've got a pretty big law school reunion coming up in two years, correct? Or uh, almost three. If you had to put money on where Ken would find himself situationally in 2026, what would you say? (laughs) Um, I, 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 boy, you know, one thing I, I have learned about um, about Ken in, in in working on this piece is it's very tough to predict which direction he's going because he's been in several. Um, you know, he, he was a liberal lawyer for many decades. He, he became a conservative lawyer. And now he may be an outlaw lawyer. Um, I, I think he will probably have to just 
sit there and wait for the resolution of the Trump case. Um, obviously, Jack Smith, the special counsel who was in charge of the investigation, the priority is is getting through that trial and, and obtaining a conviction. But if Trump is convicted, I think Ken is at very big risk of of uh, of being indicted himself. And, um, you know, he, he could be. Um, the first member of our Harvard Law School class to be a convicted felon. So you got that going for you. That's right. Certainly there have been plenty of Harvard Law School graduates who are convicted felons. But as far as I know, in in our class, there haven't been any yet. I mean, you know, you can't be on the Supreme Court yet, but at least you can say, like, you know, I'm ahead of the pack here. That's certainly true. Well, it's a terrific piece of reporting and and analysis, Jeffrey, as always. So uh, grateful for you for bringing it to light in Airmail and on morning meeting this week. You know, Michael, I like how you said Donald Trump is in the news again. When is he ever out of the news? I'm sorry to tell you, we're going to be reading about him in the news every week, every day for a very long time coming. Yes, that's true. But you know what? Enough of that. But one link here, Linda Wells this week has a story that maybe Trump would want to read. What's all about fuller, thicker hair. But you can tell us all about that and the new issue of Airmail Look, right, Ashley? Yes, indeed. We're happy to have Linda on here to talk not only about her column, but about the latest issue of Airmail Look, which you can find at airmail.news backslash look. Linda Wells is the longtime editor of Allure magazine, which she founded and she is our beauty and wellness columnist at airmail as well as the editor of airmail look welcome linda okay linda long hair don't care where did the idea from your column come from this week well actually it came from you ashley i love it she's exposed that's not the answer i was expecting but anyway go ahead you guys worked this out it's beautiful so i went to an event in the hamptons actually sponsored by airmail and it was uh, a screening of a movie with a dinner beforehand at Marcy Klein's house. And Marcy's hair is down to her waist. And I hadn't seen her in a while. And then Elizabeth Saltzman was at the cocktail and her hair is down below her bottom. And so there's Vera Wang, there's Donna Karen, there were all these people who had this incredibly long hair. And then you can't escape the fantasticness of Beyonce in her Renaissance tour. And she's just like the wind is blowing and the the fans are going and her hair is flowing and there's sequins. And then we have Barbie. And so suddenly it's that Taylor Swift and you name it. And there's a story. There's even an exhibition at the Musée des Arts Décoratifs with um, about hair. So the world coalesced and I decided it was the summer of hair. Began, like, do you think it was a COVID thing? People just started growing their hair long. How do you explain the origins of it? I definitely think it's a COVID thing. I think people just didn't go to the hair cutter for obvious reasons. You couldn't for a long time. And then they just kept going and going and going. And then I, I think after they emerged, you know, also I think people weren't coloring their hair. They weren't blow drying their hair. They weren't flat ironing, curling it and all the things you need to do if you're going out and about. And so as a result, they kind of emerged from COVID with this really long hair and thought, I'm keeping it. It took a long time to grow. I'm not going to go back now. And some of them admit admit that they might look ridiculous. Some of them have friends tried to intervene and tell them they really look like they might be losing their mind. And they say, thank you. And then they keep going. And Linda, one of the things I love about this story is we're not talking about women in their 20s. In many occasions, these are women in their 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond. Uh, This does feel new, doesn't it? It does. I mean, everyone was once upon a time told, probably by the magazines where I used to work, that you should, when you reach a certain age, you should cut 
cut your hair. And what that age is is sort of mysterious. But and hair does like it loses a lot of its shine and a lot of its strength and health when it gets older, like everything. But I think people have decided that's this is who I am. My hair is my partly my identity and I'm not cutting it. And you look at Vera Wang, who's into her 70s and her hair is, I don't know, it's it down to her thigh. It's really, really long and it looks good. This is not easy to maintain either. Like what are some of the lengths that these women are going to to keep this looking so great? Well, all the time that they save on coloring and curling and blow drying, because they're all just air drying their hair, they put into treatments and masks and oils and they don't wash their hair that often. That's the other thing. I mean, this is not, back in the day, we used to wash our hair every day, lather, rinse, repeat, and no one's doing that. And so there's a lot of tending and oiling and brushing. But what you lose in a lot of other things, they don't go to the salon. And if they go, they get like a half inch cut because they're too freaked out to get much more done. Okay, well, this is a fascinating story. Everyone should read it to really understand where these women are coming from in full. But we also have an incredible new issue of Airmail Lookout, airmail.news backslash look. And Linda, we need to talk about at least a couple of the stories in that, the first of which being Lauren Bands writing about the trend of threesomes as birthday gifts. Explain. That is such a funny story. I mean, threesomes are not new, as I'm sure there are many in the Bible, but people giving them as a birthday present seems like a quite a new twist. And there's a lot of women giving it to their partners. And then one woman went to Vegas, hired a sex worker, set out some rules, and that was happy birthday to him. And then another one woman brought her husband's ex in, which I think is really kind of pushing all the limits of behavior and normalcy. And I'm sure therapists are getting very busy with all this. And what happened to them was they all ended up getting so drunk that they don't even remember what happened. So I think that there are many issues to go with it, but it is a very funny story. And Linda, we also have a really fascinating think piece on Bethany Frankel, which everyone, they know who she is as a real housewife, but Brennan Kilp tells us that there's something that we have been missing. Yeah, Bethany Frankel has become a TikTok and Instagram real star by being the biggest consumer in the country. She goes shopping apparently all the time, and she is very much into the world of high-low TJ Maxx, which she calls Teach. She has nicknames for everything. And she does huge shopping sprees and then comes back. And her one area of great expertise is beauty. So she'll put on makeup or she'll be eating and putting on makeup or putting on creams and compare expensive and inexpensive and things I love and things that aren't worth it. And she's a real truth teller and she is all from her experience and people are eating it up. Okay, but we have lots more where that came from. New issue of Airmail Look, airmail.news backslash look. Thank you so much, Linda Wells. Okay, Ashley, on the subjects of looking good as well as questionable behavior, Joseph Bullmore has a great story out of the UK this week about a scandal involving what are known as private banks, where certain select individuals can keep their money. That's right, it's not enough to be wealthy. You need the status of the right bank, especially if it's Coots & Co., best known as the Queen's Banker. Joseph is a writer at large for Airmail and the editor of the Gentleman's Journal in London, so please welcome Joseph Bullmore. <laughs> Okay, so Joe, turns out that when you live in the United Kingdom, even banking can be a loaded proposition. It can tell people everything they need to know about you. How does this phenomenon happen and where did it all begin? I think really it's just an extension of sort of the clubby lifestyle of a certain slice of British society where everything since you were two years old has pretty much been an exclusive club from your school to your tennis club to your the cricket club you're a member of to White and eventually up to the House of Lords if you're so inclined. Everything has to be 
exclusive and everything has to be a higher bar to entry, really. So once you got that mentality, it's pretty depressing to keep your money in a high street bank like everybody else. So you have to bank at an exclusive place where they throw up sort of arbitrary barriers towards you. The most famous of which, of course, is Coots & Co down on the Strand, which is known rather splashily as the Queen's Banker or formerly the Queen's Banker, obviously. Talk barriers to entry. Is this only about money? Is it about class? What exactly are these defining characteristics? So they're different for each bank and there's sort of five or six major private banks that people consider. They're sort of shrouded a little bit of mystery, but at Coots & Co, you probably need 500000 to a million in assets invested with the bank. Other places vary. At Whore & Co, it's a million in theory, but probably five million in practice, I'm told. But aside from that, they need to know you're the right sort of person. So a former Coots CEO famously said, even if you are a multi-multi-millionaire, we still might turn you down. They really want people who, in their eyes, are very particular. And this is the word Coots has always used particular people bank at Coots, which is sort of a very English way of saying, we'll decide whether you're worth it. Thanks very much. Let me get this straight. So even if I have $5 million in assets that I want to invest with Coots, they don't necessarily want my money because they might think that I'm tacky or I'm an American or who is the ideal client for a bank like Coots? It's probably changing. And the big thing about Coots is over the last decade or so, they've been very careful to adjust their public image. So now they want sort of young entrepreneurs. They want people from international backgrounds. They want artists musicians who they can sort of tout as the new generation of wealthy people. Back in the day, it would have been very much aristocrats, landed gentry, royal adjacent people and people with grand titles. And now I think they're changing that. But as part of that change, they've come into the news and under fire in Britain in one of these silly season stories that has just caught fire everywhere. And they've started debanking people they think are politically or socially unpalatable. The most famous of whom is a chap called Nigel Farage, who is the biggest self-publicist in the UK, sort of Brexit flag bearer and man who wishes it was 1910 again. He was debanked by Nat West or Coots, debanked by Coots, I should say, for holding unpalatable political views. And they characterize him as xenophobic and chauvinistic, which we might agree with, but sets an interesting precedent that your bank can suddenly decide to cut you off just because it doesn't agree with what you think. The funny thing about Coots is, is it holds itself up as a private bank, but it was bought in the 90s by Nat West, which is a huge conglomerate bank itself owned by Royal Bank of Scotland, both of which were completely messed up by the financial crisis and had to be bailed out by the British taxpayer. So this huge private bank that lords itself as the smartest, poshest private club ever actually, essentially, is mostly owned by hardworking taxpayers who would never be considered for a bank account with them. So it's all quite a funny, very interesting situation where, well, as you can imagine, it's there's a lot of layers to it. Joseph, as you note in your story, is there any sort of meaning in the fact, as you detail, even Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, for some reason, made this appear in a story about Dracula? Yeah. Well, I mean, the interesting irony about Coots is they were known for years and years as the people who were happy to take money from all sorts of dubious sources and basically essentially got done for money laundering for decades and decades and had to pay billions in fines over the years. So they weren't so selective back then. And I think, yeah, I think I say in my story that it's apt that Dracula, who's a sort of very grand, foreign, blood-sucking, less than palatable person, has been aided by the kind of English gentry to penetrate British high society. He is the prototype blood-sucking oligarch of which we've seen a lot in our news lately. But Coots used to love those people, used to very happily take their money, and now has decided that it's holier than thou and 
and won't be associated with someone who's pretty Brexity. Is this sort of discrimination legal in the UK? It's not. It's a very grey area, but it's very much controversial to say the least because Dame Alison Rose, who was the CEO of NatWest, who was right at the centre of all of this, has resigned. I think his name is Peter Flavel who was the CEO of Coots, has resigned in this whole thing. It's not a good look to be cutting off your customers. Whether or not it's legal is, I think, a question that's being explored right now. And there's certainly a few lawsuits being filed against them. But regardless of that, it just makes Coots, which has been written about in Gilbert and Sullivan operas and is known for being the Queen's banker. And they even have a Coots cash point underneath Buckingham Palace. It's that smart. It's basically torpedoed their image and their credibility in a few very dodgy PR moves. Now I'm feeling Feeling a little self-conscious. I mean, I have an HSBC expat account. Will you still be seen in public? Absolutely. In fact, yeah, there's a certain type of person at a certain type of members club who very showily gets out their coots card when it's time to pay the sashimi bill. And those type of people should be avoided at all costs. Bring on the HSBC and RBS and honest high street bankers of the world, for God's sake. Thank you so much, not only for this great story and conversation, but also for making sense of this ridiculous universe for us. I love it, Joseph. Excellent. Thanks, guys. A pleasure. Thanks, Joseph. Catch up soon. It is the weekend. Do you have anything at all you could recommend to us? Actually, you were a fan of Only Murders in the Building, right? Of course. Okay, well, it's back with season three. It's got a few surprises, including Meryl Streep. And if you're a fan of the show, I think you'll like this new season. I've only seen episode one, but I feel it already has a little different beat than season two, which I would say kind of lagged at times. So I've only seen the first episode. It's also got Paul Rudd in it. But if the season's as good as this first episode, I'm in. So I'm going to give it a couple more. See where I go? I think we all should. It's only murders in the building and it's on Hulu right now. And you, my dear? We also have to talk about something that you you might disagree with. Are you watching and just like that? No, I'm not watching and just like that, but... Okay, I love it. I wanted to hate it desperately. I didn't love the first season. I think they have some great writers, Samantha Irby and Susan Hill, and like a lot of really wonderful people um, working on this season of it. But look, it has its issues. Fine. I think in many ways, like women in their 50s and 60s are just really underrepresented on television. I think the show does such a great job of making that phase of life so anti-cliche and seems so rich and exciting and very stylish to boot. So look, I know everyone's going to make fun of me. People are going to take issues for this, but I do think that the show is really watchable. It's a lot of fun. I find myself looking forward to it in a way I never would have expected. So I got to say I'm a fan. Sarah Jessica, not bad. Okay, into it. Have you ever walked by her shop there on Bleecker Street, the shoe shop, and she's in there like once a week selling shoes? Huh, who knew? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Al Sanders Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.